This is the Dr. Mama Podcast with your host, Dr. Alice Kaufman. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dr. Mama Podcast. Well, hello there, lovely people. We are so excited to have you joining us for our episode number 13 for March 13th, 2021. And uh, there is an elephant in the room we should address, which is our magical absence for the last few weeks. <laughs> yes, I'm sure every single one of you downloads and listens to our episodes every single week on the day it comes out and has been devastated over the past two weeks. And we're if you, very, if you very can't sorry. tell over the internet, that was sarcasm. I'm not actually <laughs> usually very good at sarcasm, so I was a little bit proud of myself. Um, but yes, we are super sorry. We had the unfortunate co-occurrence of two weeks of night float for me with um, a fabulous but very time-consuming international folk conference for Alex, um, which had him up until the wee, wee hours every night, and I was obviously up all night because I was working nights. Um, You're up all night to get lucky? <laughs> kind of. I was delivering babies. Babies well, are lucky, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but regardless, it did mean that we were not able to put together episodes for you lovely people. What's um, more interesting is that we thought we could make it work. Yes, we are <laughs> We are forever the optimists and we're like, we can totally do it. And then we had done it on nights before when I had just one week of nights. But it turns out that two weeks of nights when Alex also has a conference is just not really feasible. So apologies. Sorry but we about are that. back. We are We're back. Not necessarily awake, but we are back. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more awake than we were this time a week ago. So that's good. Oh, and it's absolutely wonderful. Like the since we last did an episode, the uh spring is really coming yes. into its own now. Spring has sprung. Oh. The weekend was really quite chilly, but today it is starting to get warm. The snow is melting. I mean, there's still snow on the ground, but there's less of it than there was. We can go I'm outside without a heavy jacket and earmuffs. I'm very excited. I'm a very happy person right now. Yes. <laughs> I love springtime. It is my absolute favorite season of the year. Talking of spring, shall we spring forward and talk about <laughs> the uh, person we have coming up on today's episode? DJ That's Link really in funny. the house. <laughs> That's really funny because it's um, daylight savings time this weekend. Oh, so we is. get to You're spring right. forward. Yeah. That's a Remember reminder that. to all y'all. Jump your clocks forward an hour. Um, if you're in the U.S., don't do it if, if you're, you're in, in the U.S. UK. Yeah, in the U.K., you guys have another couple of weeks. So we get a four-hour time difference in um, med school. And before med school, while Alex and I were still living in different continents, um, these were always like my favorite couple of weeks of the year because it was a couple of weeks of the year where we had a four-hour time difference instead of a five-hour. And somehow that felt so significant that like one hour it was significant for me yeah more because for you. it was more like a midnight <laughs> talking to you instead of 1am talking to you sorry about that <laughs> anyway should i go back to my cheesy dj link anyway spring forward to who's coming up on the podcast this week yes so we have a very special guest this week we are talking with rebecca ortiz worthington and this is going to be a very special two-part series our first ever um with discussions with Rebecca first around her personal story and then in our second episode with her coming up next week um, we'll get more of a philosophical discussion around um, family 
family leave and maternity leave yeah, and we, we will find out more next week everything you guys will just have to come back to learn more um so this is dr rebecca ortiz worthington um she did medical school at the university of chicago followed by internal medicine residency also at the university of chicago and she is now doing a fellowship in academic clinical medicine with a focus on the women's health track at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And here is our is our interview with her. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. We'd love to start by giving you a chance in your own words to tell your story of how did you become a Dr. Mama? Um, so I, um, had my son during intern year of internal medicine residency. Um, you know, I, um, did not, I was not pre-med in undergrad. I did not go straight through from there. So I was a little bit older than most of my peers. And so, uh, I think it was more of like, a, you know, life <laughs> timing issue. <laughs> um, although I think we can all agree that intern year of residency is not the ideal time to have a baby, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I also had a baby during intern year. It wasn't, you know, ideal, but it works. It know. works. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, um, I had my son in March of intern year. Um, he was actually born on match day. Um, and so basically took maternity leave and then was able, and then came back and did a little bit of residency kind of as an intern and then rejoined, um, re quote unquote, rejoined my class, <laughs> um, as a PGY two. Um, and so I don't know, that's kind of the short version. <laughs> so did you always, um, you said you didn't do pre-med and undergrad, you didn't go straight through what was the path that brought you to medicine? Yeah. So I was, um, interested sort of growing up in politics and public service. And in college, I, um, when I was trying to figure out my major, I wanted to, you know, do something that was, you know, related to public policy and public service. Um, and I also thought that it would be beneficial to have sort of like an area that I had more comfort or expertise in. Um, and you know, it, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a very complicated decision, I guess in high school, I really liked biology, even though I was more of like an English and like history sort of a person. Um, and so I, um, majored in something called human biology, which is an interdisciplinary sort of like design it yourself major. Um, the vast majority of the people in that major are pre-meds at the time. Um, but because you could design it yourself, I took all of the required like science classes with them, which didn't include like general chemistry even. <laughs> um, it was really just like, you know, biology and then some of the like real world applications of that. Um, and then had the other like political science, public policy classes that I was interested in. Um, and a lot of what I did in college, the um, 
um, internships and work stuff that I did were all related to like public health. Um, and so I, oh, I knew that I wanted to do something in the public health world, um, but I didn't know exactly what. And I graduated in 2009 in the middle of the recession and, <laughs> you know, public service is like not, uh, <laughs> not a well-funded field, not a well-funded group. Yeah. So, um, and I also thought that it would be really beneficial to get other skills that were applicable. So I, um, took a job in Chicago where I had never been, um, doing a hospital strategy consulting with a little bit of operations. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and worked at two different places. And at the what first kind place of stuff does that entail? Just because I'm never on that side of a hospital meeting. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I was doing a lot of work with Excel spreadsheets and okay. data stuff and PowerPoint, but I mean, sort of big picture, it's like, what are the services that we as a hospital offer and do those match what the patients in our community need? Um, oh. And if not, you know, how do we meet that um, while also you know, given the healthcare system that we have, you know, how do we also meet that need while making enough money to keep making our doors our bottom open? Line. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. And so that's kind of like the big general idea, but the projects are of course, like much more specific than that. Yeah. Um, and so I met my husband um, at one of those, uh, working at one of those companies. And then during that time, um, knew that I did not, you know, want to stay in this consulting world um, and was trying to decide what to do. And there were actually a lot of physicians who worked at the company that I worked at. And by that time, I had a lot of good friends who were in medical school um, or who were, you know, doing the application process. Um, and so ultimately decided that medicine was sort of the best way to combine um, all of my interests and also, you know, just sort of be doing more direct work, um, rather than this, like, you know, many steps removed sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was, it was a little bit daunting because I think I had seen it from the outsider's perspective, right? Like I had seen everyone in the pre-med classes working really hard and trying to get the best grades and sort of feeling like, spots in medical schools were a very limited resource. Um, and so I was like very aware of the stress that was involved in that. And then also having made a real salary for a couple of years was also very aware of the mm. long timeline of not making <laughs> real <laughs> yeah. money. And so yeah. I, it, I sort of felt like a crazy person when I decided that this was the best thing to do. Um, but I, so then I moved to Boston to do a post back for a year. And then the year that I was applying to medical schools, um, I, I did some research work. Um, and then wound up back in Chicago um, for medical school and then stayed um, at the same institution for residency. And was that the University of Chicago? Or? Yeah, so University of Chicago, nice. yeah. So it seems like you kind of sort of took a longer path to get there, but but I think in some ways that was helpful because you kind of knew what you were letting yourself in for. You got to observe it for a while before you kind yeah. of threw yourself yes. into it. Yeah, I worry sometimes about classmates of mine who did go straight through that like 
are can you ever be sure that this is really what you want if you've never seen the real world outside of medicine so i think it kind of is is an advantage sometimes although it's also a disadvantage because you know what you're missing out on (laughs) exactly it's both right so i know like on the days that are really hard i i intuitively know that i really would not be happy doing something else even though like i guess i could if i decided to like completely change career path again (laughs) um and, but, and, and yeah, so I, I think that exactly just said the perspective is both good and bad. Um, and so as part of this, you know, it was sort of like, how is this really long path going to fit in with all of the other things that I want to do and accomplish in life? Mm. Um, you know, I think not having had other experiences or other priorities, um, makes it really easy to let medicine take over your life. Um, and sort of be the only thing that you really prioritize. Um, and to some degree, that's the way the system is set up, yeah. um, is to expect that that's what people are going to do. Um, and so I, you know, I knew that it was going to be hard to have kids and sort of fit it in, but, um, it was like something that I sort of like all along knew that I needed to like, make sure that I was going to do. Yeah. And your, your husband is not in medicine, right? Correct. So how yeah. did going through this whole process together, like what did he think about going back to do the post back and then med school and residency and, and kind of structuring your whole life around the match and all of those parts? <laughs> the match. <laughs> Alex has um, like PTSD from the match. I think everyone has PTSD yeah. from the match. <laughs> How is your whole entire future of your entire family dependent on that one envelope? <laughs> I have I have uh, a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, open the envelope, okay. and a month later, you move somewhere in the country, anywhere. Sorry, you you and my husband we could have a really long conversation. <laughs> seriously, uh, seriously considering a couple of special uh, doctor uh, partner episodes. I think yeah. you, you really should. You really should. There there seems to be um, not only a need for like a virtual extended support group for physician mothers, but also for the partners of physician mothers. Yeah, <laughs> I think that would be really helpful. Anyway, where were we? <laughs> You're really bringing that back out of me again. <laughs> um, I don't even remember. No. Um, oh, we were oh, talking about husband. how your husband made it through this process. Oh, yes. Um, well, he sort of jokes that I, well, so we started dating after I had applied to post programs, okay. um, but before I had like committed to, or like sort of as I was committing to them. And so he like sort of half jokingly, half seriously is always like, you just did this. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, you knew it was happening when you started dating me. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's really hard, right? He has made, um, some like career decisions that I don't know that he would have made if I wasn't, you know, on the medicine path that I'm on and, you know, with a very strict timelines. Um, and ultimately, yeah, I think he's been happy with what he's done. And he has also had some time and space to explore his own career and interests. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been really challenging for him and his 
you know, kind of fitting his goals in with this as well. It's totally true that like, as a partner, we do kind of have to adapt some of our goals, but it, it, you know, it's still part of what makes us happy because we want to be with our partner. And that's kind of a big, uh, a big thing about having this work. Like our happy place is being with our partner. Um, And so you make the changes around that. But you also know that even though this training process is such a long time, there there is an end of sight. It's not like this the all the time. Yeah. Like at some point, at some point when you come out the other end and you're in attending and you are out of the training, there is more flexibility. And, you know, actually in somewhat there's a reasonable amount more because there's more demand for people out the other end, you know. So there's yeah. a bit more flexibility coming then. But it's that investment in time early on. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah, it's a lot of residency in investment. Um, and and you know and we as the physicians with the rigid path sort of also make sacrifices too right yeah, it's yeah. not like you know we're considering every single medical school and residency in yeah, any yeah. place because you know there's someone else's path to to balance as well yeah so you said that you did you were in chicago for both medical medical school and residency is that where he was originally from i know that's where you met no, so neither of us is from Chicago. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So he has some family um, in the area and um, several hours away. He's from Kansas City um, and I'm from Southern California. Um, wow. So, so Chicago is, is cold for both of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly for me. <laughs> I also um, went to college in California. So I, um, you know, moved to Chicago and like, you know, I remember the first time, I think it was in like September or something when I knew that it was going to get cold and I needed to like buy a coat and things for the winter. And I like walked into a store I don't even remember what it was. And I just like looked around at the coat section and I like turned on and left because I had no idea what to do. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. If you like, I don't ex- know what I need. I don't yeah. know where to start. <laughs> I had the same thing moving from the UK, my first experience of a winter here in Boston. Um, and it was so, so cold. Like it was well into the minuses centigrade, but probably touching on touching on like zero Fahrenheit. And we were just walking and I got so cold that my face literally froze up and I couldn't speak and I sounded drunk. And Alice had to like, we had to abort the walk and like go into a Starbucks and get hot chocolate and just sit there so I could like thaw out again. But, like I've never experienced anything like it and you, you can't prepare for it until you experience it (laughs) i I remember one day the first year that i lived in chicago walking from my apartment to the train to get to work and it was a really cold day and it was windy and i was like oh my god what is that feeling and suddenly i was like my eyeballs are cold (laughs) (laughs) oh I have actually appreciated masks this year in that like my nose stays warmer when I'm like taking the kids sledding than it did in the past. You know, there's an upside to masks. Yeah, and you can put fleece on the back of your mask too, so it's even warmer. Oh, you can tell someone's living in Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so your this was a podcast about Dr. Mummers, right? So (laughs) (laughs) your training, um, you were you went back to Chicago, and was it um. And then you stayed in Chicago for um, for residency. Was that decision mostly based around 
the program or you both had kind of put down roots at that point? You just wanted to continue in the same city. How'd that go? Um, it was a little bit of everything and it was kind of complicated. I felt, um, the, the, um, like residency interview and like, like rank list process was a lot harder than I anticipated it was going to be. Um, I mean, it was in some ways it was easier for me going into internal medicine because it's a large field and it's not as competitive, but, um, you know, we have family kind of all over the country. And so there wasn't one obvious geography for us to target. Um, and my husband's job was in Chicago at the time and he really loved it. Um, but we had really no other reason to stay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had a, a really great network of friends that, you know, we had built there and I, really loved a lot of the, a lot of the people in the internal medicine program in the department. Um, and it was a huge draw. Um, I actually did not apply to any other programs in Chicago because I sort of felt like if I was going to stay, there was really no other reason than to stay at the university of Chicago. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the, the institution for me was just a really wonderful fit because it had you know, where it's location on the South side, it has like a very, um, a strong sort of um, sense of duty to its community um, to provide really high level care. And, but it's also a tertiary referral center. So it's, it's a really um, unique combination. Um, and that it sort of attracts people who um, are, are interested in all of those things. And, um, you know, the, a lot of the teaching in our medical school was from faculty in the medicine department. And um, I, I had really valued that a lot. Um, and so, you know, there, <laughs> there, was, there were a lot of reasons to stay and um, sort of a lot of other geographies I think were harder to go to for one reason or another. Um, you know, where my family is from, it's the cost of living is, is you know, feels prohibitive. Um, on a resident salary if you also want to have a family at the same time. Um, and so, so there, there were a lot of things going into it. Yeah. My husband got to stay at his job and, you know. And so you, you said that you had, uh, you, you gave birth during um, intern year. Uh, so obviously starting a family was in mind during this decision as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, so it was. And um, yeah, we definitely wanted to, to have a child and we're really weren't sure of the timing. And part of it was sort of dependent on like what was going to happen in the match, right? If we were going to move yeah. somewhere with a really high cost of living, it, we were probably not going to do it immediately. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, it sort of worked out not, not moving cities, I think helped us feel comfortable and, um, you know, I, I knew that in, in general, I would be supported where I was. And so it felt like a less risky decision. Um. <laughs> when you guys were talking about kind of your timeline as a couple progressing towards a family, and you're talking about whether or not you're going to move with the match and kind of how training goes and and he's not in medicine, so he doesn't kind of have this picture that, I don't know, at least I had going into it that like intern year is like 
third year of medical school, but worse. And then it kind of progresses from there. <laughs> how did you have that conversation? How did you talk about like where, how and where are we going to have the time to build the family that we want to build? Um, we talked about it and we had sort of no real answers, right? Because yeah. I think we realized like you just don't, you don't really know. You, yeah. you don't really know until you're in it. Um, like and the cold. Like the cold. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be, you know, honest, I was 31 when we had my son. So I was just sort of like, you know, there's like a biological kind of element yeah. to this that we really can't ignore. And we could let, you know, medicine and the training structure dictate everything about our life. Or we could, you know, say that, yes, uh, logically, this may not be the perfect choice, but um, let's just, let's just go, let's just go for it. <laughs> nice. So then how was intern year for you? So intern year, um, I was basically pregnant for all, almost all, if not all of intern year until I had my son. Um, so I don't know how intern year not pregnant is, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, there were definitely times when it was harder. And I think there were times definitely in the first trimester when I had not told people that I was pregnant, um, that I don't know if some of the like physical feelings I was feeling were from pregnancy or from intern year. Um, mm like, you know, when I was on the ICU or there was a time probably when I was, I don't remember exactly, but I would say roughly eight weeks when I was the, um, I see the Mickey night float intern. Oh, um, and, <laughs> um, and, you know, so I had like a very big box of like food and snacks packed and just kind of would go home and like, just sleep right until like it was time to leave again and then sort of like drag myself out of bed. <laughs> um, and it was intern year without a lot of caffeine, I will say it's yeah. very challenging. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a time that time when I was um, that Mickey night float intern in the mornings, you know, I was the one who would present the overnight admissions to everyone. And at least one of those presentations would be to basically everybody in the MICU, like all of the teams and the, you know, fellows and all. So it was just like, you know, 30 people A kind of yeah. listening to you present and like critiquing the overnight decisions. And um, yeah. I was like standing up and talking and I was like holding my like piece of paper and I all of a sudden just started felt like I was about to pass out. And I was just like, I like interrupted myself and I was like, I'm about to pass out. And someone like brought me a chair and I sat down and my attending was like, do you need someone else to present for you? And I was like, nope, I got it. And I just <laughs> kept presenting, sitting in my chair with 30 people looking at me. Oh, poor thing. I was going to say, that's such a doctor's approach to it though. Like, no, I'm going, I'm carrying on, I'm doing this. <laughs> So how just, yeah, so you yeah, but at that time nobody knew that I was pregnant. So it was yeah. just a, like a very awkward feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um I think I I had a I have a similar memory of being like eight or nine weeks pregnant as a third year medical student rotating in the ICU and actually telling my team at that point because I almost passed out on rounds and I was like, I need to sit down, I need to go vomit. <laughs> and then coming back and telling my senior resident, like 
I'm really sorry. I just want to let you know because I felt like I needed I needed a reason to give her for being this like weird third year medical student who just ran away to vomit. Like I'm very, I'm I'm just a little bit pregnant. Just, just a touch. <laughs> <laughs> um, how so when you started to sort of let let your team and stuff know, um, did it did it make a difference? Do you think that you'd already been there and you'd already built some relationships? How did you find your support through pregnancy and sort of like the first year say were with yeah with having a team that you're already kind of new do you, do you think that was helpful I think it was really helpful um the so when I was telling the program um the first person that I told was one of the chiefs who was sort of like assigned to like the firm the like group of residents that I was in and I had known um that person before. Um, so it was, it felt easier and, and more comfortable. And then they sort of facilitated the conversation with a program director because I didn't really know <laughs> exactly the right way to go about it. Um, and they were, you know, everyone was really happy and really supportive and, um, you know, which is kind of a check-in and, you know, like in a caring way, <laughs> sort of asking about things. Um, and, and it, it was, it was, I sort of felt like I, um, if, you know, I had like an off day where I just like, didn't feel great or was really tired or whatever. I was like, it's okay. Like they, they know me. <laughs> um, and, and so it definitely, it felt more comfortable and it definitely felt easier. Yeah. And when did you tell your program director, um, yeah. like when along your process for scheduling purposes I don't actually remember but it was somewhere I would say 12 or 15 weeks somewhere in there I think like somewhere um, around the end of the first trimester yeah yeah um and yeah it was definitely definitely important for scheduling purposes um <laughs> I the two weeks of like within my due date like on my due date, I was scheduled to be in the CCU. (laughs) So there was a lot of schedule rearranging that had to happen. (laughs) And I had a lot of very um, generous, very generous co-interns who rearranged their schedules so that I could sort of move up my ICU time. And, um, you know, when I came back, um, I delivered a couple of weeks early. And so I came back a couple of weeks early and um, they weren't able to sort of like get rid of my time. So they just had to call people in like Jeopardy basically to cover my, my time when I was on maternity leave and, um, people were really, really gracious about it. And, um, the first two weeks that I came back was where technically I was supposed to have been on leave, but I wasn't cause I had left two weeks early and my schedule had me in the NICU again. And so I was, back doing, and I I wound up doing a consult service because everyone sort of agreed that coming back to the Mickey was, is crazy. Um, and so, you know, one of my co-interns did the Mickey time for me while I was back. And, you know, that was like, and he was very gracious and generous about it. And it was, I mean, the, I think the amount of support that residents give each other is, um, can sometimes be overlooked or underappreciated but it was yeah. very um very prominent and really touching at the time so wonderful i 
I feel like the most support I ever had in residency has always been from my co-residents and it's definitely the most powerful thing I think in any program. Yeah, um, I agree. How did it feel for you though to be the one who needed to ask for help and and ask for support and change your rotations? Was it I know for for me and for people I've talked to there there can be kind of some guilt there and some shame and to be kind of the weak link, not that you're actually a weak link, but you're the one who's who's needing more support. Was that something you were able to move past kind of emotionally to get what you needed for yourself and your pregnancy? So yes and no. Um, it felt horrible. And I was, I felt really guilty about it the whole time. Yeah. Um, and, but there's really no way that you can like make it up to somebody, yeah. right? Like they're literally doing your job for you. Yeah. Um, and because of the way that our structure works, we're sort of like barely covering the services that we're supposed to be covering. And it's not like there's redundancy. So, you know, I mean, my life decision impacted basically everybody else in my residency class and the chiefs and other people. Um, so I felt really horrible about it. And I basically, when I was around, I tried to do, I tried to help out as much as I could. And, um, I, I did not, um, except for once ask for coverage for my maternity appointment, my, my like OB appointments. <laughs> um, like I would just take the pager with me. I would just leave the floors and take all my stuff and go. Cause I, my OB was in the same hospital and the buildings were attached. Um, and so you can hear all the pages overhead, like in the clinic. So I knew that like, <laughs> If something bad is happening, I could I could figure it out. And if there was a code uh, called on your page, yeah, to run. Yeah. One the one time I called someone in to cover me. So my my son in utero was um, IUGR, um, and so I had to go in for like weekly or however frequently it was, like, like the NSDBP. you know NSTs and BPPs yeah. and all that stuff. Um, which again, I was like, I'm not asking people to cover me this frequently. This is a lot of time. Um, but one time I had, when I had to go in for those, I was in the CCU and it was my residence day off. So I was alone and I had a patient who was doing very poorly, <laughs> two patients who were doing very poorly. And I called in, um, the person, there is like always a resident sort of designated to like be available on yeah. call. And so I called them in to, to cover me for my appointment, um, and then came back. <laughs> But that was the only time I did it. That is so impressive. And I also feel like so, such a kind of a classic story of moms in medicine that you don't, you don't want to ask for help if you can possibly avoid it. And in most fields, taking an hour or two and having somebody cover you or asking for an hour or two of time off from your work to do your like required OB appointments, like it's not optional, would be so normal. And in medicine, somehow we can't, we can't get to a point where we think like, it's okay to like, take your own time for your own medical care. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, um, a plus and a minus within our system, right? We want to be needed, we are needed within our hospitals. And there isn't redundancy, like you said, if you can't do your job, somebody else has to do it. But um, at the same time, I kind of wish that we didn't have quite that level of of guilt and um, in, in difficulty making the decision to actually ask for help and like 
someone cover me for this half hour appointment. Well, and I feel like <laughs> yeah. doctors have it particularly bad because not only is it ingrained into your system to be best of the best in medical school and through the medical system, that seems to also, I've noticed from moving here, just the American ideal generally. And it's... You that, might have a little bit of a skewed perspective since most of the people you know are like within my medical well, school. That's true. No, no. But like a lot of other people I've met, there is this kind of like thing of like you strive for your job and your money and you don't make time for yourself because what it, what is important is just getting to the next level and, you know, making time for yourself is seen as this kind of hippy dippy thing on the side <laughs> where actually it is really important, really, really oh, important. That's to, really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. I mean, I've obviously never lived in England, but that that is an interesting. Yeah, we will we, we'll stop of an afternoon and have a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> I live up to my stereotype. <laughs> anyway, uh, was it Doctor Mama podcast? Okay, right. Yes. Yeah. Moving um, back to Mums in Medicine. <laughs> so when, so when you went back to um, uh, back after giving giving birth, I was just quite interested to know what your approach was um, with breastfeeding. Um, did you attempt breastfeeding? Did you move to formula? What was your ex what was your experiences with that whole thing, especially going back to work? Yeah, so I, um, so I wanted to breastfeed, but I also knew realistically that it, it was not going to be 100% of the time when I was working. Um, and so I... I sort of like said to myself, like, it's okay <laughs> that you, that you don't do this. And my goal initially was to like breastfeed and, or pump for like six months. Um, mostly because I was like, <laughs> that seems to be something that I can achieve. And if I set a goal that I can't achieve, I'm going to be really stressed out about it and feel really bad about it. <laughs> um, and so I made it, I actually made it a little bit longer. I think I made it to like eight months or something, but, um, it was really, really hard. Um, I, at, so at the very beginning, um, when he was born, like he didn't, I don't know, you probably know because you're famous and he didn't have like a the sucking reflex or like, he didn't know how to suck. Was he, he was early. He only like, you know, 10 days before my due date. So oh, he wasn't okay. early, but he was just So he was like little. full term, but small. He was full term, but very small. Yeah. He was like the second percentile. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's still a small guy, but he was really small. Um, and, you know, we can speculate as to the reasons why. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I don't, I, I, you know, personally, I just, I have no idea if that had anything to do with it, but, um, I remember like people saying like breastfeeding is like, it's a team. And I was like sitting there being like, this is not a team. Like my <laughs> teammate can't really see, he doesn't understand words. Like he can't talk and he can't suck. Like this is not a team. He is not contributing to this, this team is, ever. Like, I'm just, I'm just leading this endeavor. <laughs> Later on, it became more of like a team once he learned how to do it. But at the beginning, I was like, this is not the appropriate analogy. <laughs> that is so funny. This is like a group project where I'm doing all the work and you're not contributing. <laughs> Mad at him. I was more just like, I literally don't know what to do because you yeah. you don't know what to do and I can't tell you. <laughs> So anyway, lactation yeah. consultants are wonderful. Yes, um, is a takeaway from that. 
Um, so anyway, it was, it was very challenging at first and then it got better. And, you know, partway through my maternity leave, I was like, I got to build the like freezer supply of milk. So I was started pumping then. And at some point, I don't know if I was still on leave or if, cause my husband took vacation. He did not get paternity leave. So he took vacation and I think FMLA maybe. I can't even remember exactly what we used, but he took a month after I went back to work. And so he was just, he was alone. So I, I had 12 weeks. Sweet. Um, yes. Um, so I had 12 weeks and then my husband had four right after that. Um, and then my son went to daycare. Um, but so I can't remember if it was during my leave or my husband's leave, we started introducing formula because, it must, have, it must have been when I was back at work because pumping at work is, I don't want to use the word impossible because I did it, but it was very, very hard. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, basically you think about the structure of a day and it's like you show up, you pre-round, you round, you have to run the list, call all the consults, put all the orders in to make sure that they happen in a, that day and in a timely fashion. You have to go to teaching conferences and then it's the middle of the afternoon <laughs> and the consults are calling you back and all of the stuff is happening and you have to react to the scans and like now the follow-up labs are coming back. And by that time I was a PGY too. So, you know, it wasn't like there was someone who was like gonna be really handling it. Um, and I mean, by that point, it's what, like, it's, I mean, it's been a minimum of eight hours. <laughs> yeah. At that point, it's like already at least 3 p.m. Yeah. And you haven't pumped since you arrived at like, what, 6.30. Exactly. So, you know, I would basically wait as long as humanly possible or as, as long as possible, like within my, like the flow of the day and, you know, until I was like way too uncomfortable to function. And then I would like take my pumping bag and like run to one of the pumping rooms in the hospital, which existed and were great, but they were shared with literally all the hospital staff, right? So like all the nurses, the environmental service workers, like everybody. And in the inpatient hospital, there were really two kind of main ones for the non-surgical floors. Cause there was one right by the ORs and um, I think maybe another one by the OR. So anyway, there were really just two and like they had a chair with like a little like fold out desk and a mini fridge and a microwave. So you could like wash and sterilize and do everything in there. But the issue was getting into getting one of them when you needed it, which for me was like a really, really narrow window of time. And so there were a lot of days where I was like, I got to go pump and it's going to take me at least 10 minutes to find a place where I can do it. And I would just like run around the hospital, like feeling really vasovagal and sweaty and oh like hoping that like, I wasn't like leaking everywhere <laughs> and then like trying to pump as much as possible. And I would like bring my computer so that I could like type notes or call back. I would, I would also like save up some pages and I would call back pages while I was pumping. Um, I did a lot of things while I was pumping. <laughs> um, but so I would pump maybe twice a day at the absolute most, basically. Um, and I had tried at the beginning, I really tried to do it more frequently and it just became clear that it was like not possible. And I was just like not doing my job. 
well. Yeah. Um, and so then um, my the person who had made my schedule for PGY2 year knew that I was going to be coming back and they were very generous and tried to avoid me being on like night float rotations for a little while. So I think it was like November of PGY2 that I had the first night float rotation and it was like oncology night float where there was literally one resident, there were no interns and you were covering, you were cross covering all of the house staff onc teams and you were admitting a number of patients overnight and managing, you know, everyone who was unstable, yeah. um, by yourself. And wow. so I knew that pumping as was a second year resident as a second year. resident. So I knew the pumping was like not compatible with doing that. So I deliberately stopped right before that rotation. And I felt great about it. <laughs> I was really happy that I stopped basically. It had been causing like a lot of stress and it was just like, it just like, wasn't pleasant. It was just like this really like bad part of my day. Um, well, like, and then it certainly becomes a point where if your mental health starts being affected by it, it's going to relate to the family and it's, you know, mm. all overall, it's just not going to be a happy experience. So there's yeah. got to be that compromise, isn't there? With your end goal of like happy mama, happy baby. Right, like, right. Yeah. You got to focus on that. <laughs> right. So I, yeah, so that's when I stopped and I felt great and I never looked back. <laughs> and he had been, you know, having like formula and breast milk sort of mixed for a while. And so I was like, it's fine. He's doing fine. It's great. <laughs> great. Yeah. Perfect. So, awesome. Yes. And so um, as he was kind of, going through that first year how was it being you were finishing your intern year and then going into pgy2 and i'm sure you were working a million hours um and not home that much how was it building your relationship with him and your your kind of identity relationship as a now a three-person family how was that process while you were finishing internship um so sorry, you're saying when I got, when I was back at work, when you came back. Yeah. When I, yeah. So it was chaotic, um, basically. <laughs> um, so the daycare that he was at, which was wonderful was across the street from the hospital. Um, which we, a lot of the like people who I worked with had their kids there. Um, the thing was that by that time, so my husband was working downtown and the hospital and like his work were in opposite directions and we only had one car. Um, so, and I was getting to work earlier than daycare was opening and I would leave work yeah. after daycare closed. So it was actually less convenient than we thought it was going to be to have <laughs> yeah. the daycare across the street from where I worked. Um, so for a little while we had, um, basically someone like take him to daycare. Um, and, either they, they would take him home or I would pick him up if I was off earlier. Um, like, a, like a nanny or a babysitter. Yeah. Basically just like a, like a, like a person who literally just did that. <laughs> um, she was like wonderful. Um, and that, and that didn't last for a whole long period of time, but like enough that it was like very helpful at the beginning. Um, and I mean, you know, at the beginning of are so little, like they're, you know, I, I was like, oh, like he's going to, it's going to be so sad. Like, I'm not going to be the one who's there all the time and he's going to really miss me. And then I realized that he really didn't because 
they just care that there's someone there who cares about them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, but basically it was like really fragmented and hard, um, because the times that I would have with him were like before I would go to work, if he was awake, um, but I wasn't going to wake him up to <laughs> like spend time with him or like feed him. I would just pump instead. Um, so sometimes in the morning, but not always. And then in the evenings, that's when I would see him, but it would really only be for like an hour, but then he would wake up later. Um, and so then I would see him again. <laughs> um, and then in the middle of the night again, <laughs> um, and at one point we hired a, we hired a sleep consultant because I was getting so little sleep that, um, we were just like, this is, this can't go on. I mean, I was getting like four hours of sleep oh every goodness. night. Um, for a long, for like several months until I was finally like, I have no more adrenaline left in me. I can't do this anymore. (laughs) I have reached the end of my limit. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think from basically that point on, I mean, my husband has been the primary parent who's been around. Um, and so for the vast majority of my son's life, my husband has been the one doing most of the daycare pickup and drop-offs and, um, kind of all of the, all of that stuff. Um, the like weekend, like baby music class and stuff like he, mostly it was, it was the two of them. Um, and then I would go sometimes. Um, so I, you know, I definitely felt, um, like I wanted to be there and be helpful and involved when I was there, but I also felt badly that like, clearly the burden was much more on my husband than on me and how how did that develop over time because obviously your kid's older now how old is your kid now he's um he's almost three actually wow, three yeah. in a couple months so how 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 did that kind of relationship as a family sort of develop as he got older and things yeah have changed so yeah I mean I um I guess, I mean, I think it changed more drastically when residency ended and I had more flexibility, um, in my schedule. Um, and yeah, so that sort of left me with more time to like spend with them during like the normal hours when they're awake and doing things. And it's certainly not like what it would be if I was working a nine to five job, but it's significantly more than it was previously. And so that I think has, is the primary driver of like changing the family dynamics and like my son is older now. And so he, like, it matters more to him, right? Like that, you know, what we do and all, you know, all three of us spending time together and, and things like that. And how, how did that kind of like sharing of responsibility, because you're saying your husband was taking a lot of the responsibility in terms of time and care with the kid. What's the, the child care? There we go. <laughs> time and care. Yeah, right, never mind. But how, how did that develop? Did it, one, how did you sort of deal? Because it obviously sounds like you were feeling kind of guilty about that. Um, so did you manage to take some, some of that time back? um as you graduated yeah yes yeah so so I think it's still unequal but I am like it's more even than it was previously and what are you doing now so right now I'm doing um a general medicine fellowship um so I am um it's at through um UPMC and the VA in Pittsburgh 
Um, it's an academic clinician educator scholars ACES fellowship is what it's called and there are various tracks and I'm in the women's health track. Um, so basically I'm getting um, training in, um, you know, being a medical educator and um, clinically in women's health through internal medicine. And um, so I have my own clinic, I supervise residents in their clinics and I supervise residents on the wards um, in addition to doing classes for a master's in medical education and a medical education research project. Wow. Sounds like a cool. really cool balanced all around really cool so are you rounding inpatient as well yeah so six weeks out of the year um so so i don't so i don't have any inpatient service time that's not with the residents okay so i don't do like hospital you know i'm not like a hospitalist hospitalist. but you do um round as the attending on the resident inpatient service Mm -hmm. yeah exactly okay Awesome. And then you're also doing your own outpatient clinic and taking classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That and supervising the residents really... in their clinic. And their doing the care. resident. So pre, like precepting with their mm-hmm. residents, primary outpatient clinics. Mm-hmm. Wow. That sounds like a fabulous balance, but it also sounds like a lot of things. Yes. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's, it's a great, it's, it's a really nice um, chance to sort of focus on some of the other career things that there isn't time for in residency that I want to build skills in um, while also doing some of the like more attending clinical work. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's really nice. It does sound like it's with all that combination that sounds like it's quite hard to switch off when you're at home. It sounds like there's seems like there could always continuously be stuff you could be doing for work. Um, Is that the case? Yeah. So it's, so yes, um, I do wind up doing a lot more at night after my son has gone to sleep than I did during residency, but on the flip side, like basically every night I'm home, um, and like make dinner and like all of that time is ours. Um, and the weekends as well, like I can fit stuff in like when he's napping, um, at first, like before boards, when I was sitting through the boards, that was really not the case. I was like pretty busy doing that at the same time. Um, and then things kind of like the responsibilities for this kind of ebb and flow. So there are some times when it's not quite like that, but, um, yeah, for the most part, it's a lot more regular and I have more control over what I can do with my time. That's That's really nice. You know, you you saying all this means I cannot wait for a year and a half's time (laughs) when residency (laughs) finishes. Alice is on a four-year residency, so. So I have a question because that sounds like a fabulous fellowship. How did you decide, like, post-graduating from an internal medicine residency, kind of the opportunities and the possibilities are, are almost endless, like you can do fellowship in all these different fields you can work just right in primary care as hospitalist how did you decide your career track and do you think that your your son and your family affected your decision of of what direction to go in so the answer to the latter question is yes (laughs) um (laughs) the the longer answer to the first question is um it took it took me a really long time to decide what I wanted to do Um, I, when I was applying even for residency programs and starting, I did not really know what I wanted to do either. And I sort of purposefully, um, wanted to keep my options open. Um, and 
I think sort of my first big decision point was, am I going to subspecialize in internal medicine or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are like, I like a lot of things about medicine. <laughs> um, and so on the one hand, that's great. And on the other hand, I, so I could have found something that I could have some specialized in and been very happy doing that. Um, on the other hand, you know, the activation energy to get through another like set of like training was really, really high. Um, and I was just like, you know, I don't, my desire to not go through <laughs> subspecialty training is so much greater than like, you know, my need to do one specific yeah, thing. Yeah. Right. And I liked so many things that would, it, that was helpful. Yeah. Like my then, love of the kidney or the lungs or, um, like the heart is just like, doesn't match the right, three years, right. however many years of fellowship. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, after that, I sort of had to decide like, you know, within general medicine, which is also sort of a very open-ended um, field, what am I going to do and how am I going to find a career that makes me happy? Um, and I think one of the things that was clear to me was that being like a hundred percent clinical was like not a good fit for me and my family life <laughs> um, because of all of the demands and I love inpatient medicine, but I also loved my primary care patients. Um, and, you know, being a pure hospitalist with like the highs and the lows in the schedule, um, I think was just like not as appealing later on, right? I was sort of like, I, I actually, it's helpful for us for me to be able to have a, a little bit more of a predictable schedule. Um, and as like residency went on, I just like, really disliked the overnights more and more (laughs) like they didn't get, I mean, they got easier in terms of like my ability to like do the clinical work in them, but they were harder from like a physical (laughs) standpoint. Um, and so I was like, I just, you know, I don't think that I want to just be a pure hospitalist and have that be a part of my life forever. Um, and so, you know, I was sort of like, how am I going to balance all these things? I want to do inpatient and outpatient. I don't want to be hundred percent clinical. Well, And I've always sort of been in like a very academic place. Um, And so, you know, academic medicine seems like it would be a good option for me. Um, How am I going to build the skills that I need to have a successful career in academic medicine? Um, And and I've always been interested in women's health um, and especially within internal medicine and my um, one of my mentors, um, during residency, um, did this fellowship. Um, and so I spent a lot of time talking with her sort of about, um, the pros and cons of doing a fellowship, um, and sort of felt like this was the one that had sort of everything that I wanted, like both the clinical skills that I wanted to build, as well as the sort of other, um, career based skills, um, And so that's how I came to this. (laughs) So that, I mean, it sounds so fabulous to be collecting these, these varied skills. What do you, what do you envision your someday job being? (laughs) Um, I'm mostly curious because all the things you're doing sound fabulous to me. Like, (laughs) what do I do when I grow up? (laughs) So I do need to probably clarify my sort of elevator pitch, but I think in general, you know, I 
would like to work in academic medicine, ideally doing a little bit of both inpatient and outpatient yeah. medicine, um, and also having a role in medical education, either in the residency or you know medical school level, um, with a clinical area of expertise in women's health. That's fabulous. And this fellowship did move you away from Chicago. How did that discussion and decision go with with your husband and thinking about your son's daycare and all of that? Yeah. So, you know, it was, we had, I think in general, been planning on leaving Chicago at some point. Um, and so it wasn't like we, it was as big of a deal to leave this time. Um, because we were sort of like, we knew that at some point that would happen. Um, and yeah, finding a new daycare, especially during a pandemic was challenging. Um, it fortunately my, um, so I have a cousin who lives here in Pittsburgh and they live near us. Um, and so my son goes to the daycare that their daughter goes to. They're actually in the same classroom. Nice. So I think the daycare took, was like a little generous and you know yeah making sure that when they had a spot open we got it so that the cousins could be together (laughs) so that made it a lot easier especially because we couldn't visit daycares um we didn't we didn't visit the place that we live in now um and we didn't visit the daycares we just like trusted (laughs) yeah and so I was wondering um you know in terms of family planning have you had thoughts of uh growing the family or um is, is that impacting maybe decisions going forward or are you like this is the perfect little boy and we are happy now <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i mean i think in the future we would like to um the pandemic definitely influenced that yeah. <laughs> um but i think now that well i'm fully vaccinated and sort of the the end is within sight um I think we feel a little bit more comfortable (laughs) yeah yeah but I think I mean it was just it was really hard I mean you know my son's daycare shut down um in March and like I was a resident and my husband had a job and so like just you know he didn't go to daycare for the last three months of my residency how did you manage that yeah where where was he (laughs) I have images of this two-year-old sort of just, just at like, home going, oh, he, he took care of himself. <laughs> he like cooked dinner and put himself down. <laughs> um, so there was another, there was a, another resident um, in our apartment building um, who had a daughter who was a couple months younger than my son. And um, so we sort of, and his Um, wife is not in medicine, but also had to work. So we sort of like banded together because we were like, well, there's four parents now if we (laughs) create this group. Um, And so we um, sort of rotated um, child care responsibilities in the morning. And then the first year medical students started um, sort of like a sign-up system for like, um, like attendings and residents who needed help. Um, because so there was great. a little while at the beginning of the pandemic when the first year medical students didn't have class and, but they couldn't go home. So they like weren't doing very much. And so this amazing medical student, um, came and basically was their babysitter. Um, 
And then when their classes started up again, she came a couple times a week still when she was able to, because a lot of their classes were, you know, recorded because they were on, you know, remote by then. Um, And then, um, so on my, yeah, so on my days off, I would do the, like my days and it just so happened that basically like all of my downtime and residency for third year was in April. <laughs> so instead of like going on vacation or like doing research, which is what I had hoped to do, uh, I just took care of you these two kids. <laughs> full-time childcare instead. Full-time childcare. No, I w- w- rotated with them. Yeah. Yeah. But I did, I did a lot of it then because I knew that when I went back, I wasn't going to be able to do it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it was really hard. Yeah. Wow. How do you feel like your um your ability to mentally cope with the pandemic and all of this additional strain at work do you feel like that affected your ability to like do full-time childcare sometimes and like do um kind of be there emotionally also for your child and also for this other child that you're caring for both of them how emotionally how was that <laughs> Well, I, so, I mean, in general, I think like residency makes you, or like being a doctor makes you really good at compartmentalizing things, right? So it's like, now is when I'm in the hospital and this is what I'm thinking about. Now is when I'm home and this is what I'm thinking about. (laughs) And pre-pandemic, like now is when I am having dinner with a friend and this is what I am thinking about knowing that all the other things are still happening, but I can't do anything about them right now. (laughs) Um, And so like, that was sort of like the way that I mentally approached this childcare, but on the whole, it was very stressful. Um, And there, you know, at the beginning, there was a lot of uncertainty about like, you know, even like PPE and yeah. what the residents, what services were we going to be covering and where were we needed on a certain day and how to create this structure for like, who was going to be in on backup and all that stuff. Like, um, and so it was, it was very stressful because I, again, sort of felt this pressure that like, I actually had scheduled vacation during that time. Um, but I wasn't sitting, I wasn't like relaxing. I was sitting at home, like being really worried that like about my peers and about like the situation in general and childcare and like, should I just go in and help them? Because like basically every single resident is either quarantined or in use right now. Um, and so there was a lot of that going on. And at, at first, um, the residents did a lot of coverage in the COVID units, both on the floors and in the ICUs. And so, um, there initially it was on a volunteer basis. So it was opt-in rather than opt-out, which then meant that a lot of people were, the same people were just in the COVID unit the whole time and not doing other things. And I felt really badly about that, but also we didn't know about like how good, you know, protection was even with PPE and transmission rates. The phone transmission, we just didn't know all early on. Yeah. So I did what I did wind up volunteering, um, to do a short, um, stint in the COVID ICU. Um, and then I, I was already scheduled to be on other inpatient floors anyway. So, so I did that. Um, 
and, and then before I was in the COVID ICU, I was called in to like work in the MICU and the CCU. Um, so there was just like a lot of, a lot of uncertainty basically. Yeah. Uh, that's been the, the mo- one of the most stressful parts about this last year really has been the uncertainty because like hours and schedules and everything are crazy enough in residency and in medicine. Which is kind of but, unpredictable. Yeah, but, but having everything thrown up in the air and it could change within 24 hours, suddenly something might happen and you might have a rise of cases and then you have to disappear for a week or, mm. you know, there's like so many aspects that's made trying to sort of keep together as a family and keep emotionally yeah. stable as and a family. And just to keep consistent childcare. But yeah. Keep, right? yeah. <laughs> and, and our big issue was that we had nowhere for any of us to go if any of us were to get COVID, right? Because we didn't yeah. have family in the area and our parents are, you know, older, like in the age range yeah. where like they're at higher, higher risk. risk. Um, and so, and it's not like, you know, it's not like we have like a spare house or apartment or like mm. somewhere that we could just like go to. Quarantine. Um, and you know, like I said, we had one car, like it was just like, you know, we're totally screwed if one of us gets COVID, right. We're all just all going to get it. Yeah. We were in that similar spot. Um, we live with my father-in-law or your dad, that's how it works. Um, and I'm, I'm also immunocompromised as well. So we kind of had that problem of having really high risk people in the house. And how would you balance that with having a doctor in the house who's dealing with that and that was incredibly well still is kind of stressful but we know more now like you said so it's it's still a horrible situation but just the knowledge that's been gained over the last year it makes the whole thing so much more manageable yeah Yeah, exactly exactly um I also was wondering just backtracking a little bit um when you came back as finishing your intern year and then going into your PGY2 year you were managing a whole bunch of different things. You're the now PGY2 resident, a lot more responsibility. You were trying to pump also all of this hectic schedule. Do you feel like your practice as a doctor changed at all? And the way you interacted with patients changed at all now that you had been through this experience of pregnancy and now having a child and just having your, your framework, your paradigm shift a little bit? I think in some ways, yes. Um, from a workflow perspective, I definitely got more efficient. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so that was great. <laughs> um, and in terms of like the way that I approach my patients, I mean, um, I think there's just a lot of like I being in women's health, I have a lot of young women patients who are either mothers or are worrying about their fertility or things like that. Um, and so knowing, um, I think it's a lot easier, like off the top of my head to know the things I need to talk about with them and talk about, you know, even like, um, preconception counseling and, you know, teratogenic drugs and keeping an eye out for those things on their medication list. Um, it's like a lot easier for me to do, whether that's because that's like what I'm, doing more of now or versus like, that's what I personally experienced. I don't really know. Um, but I mean, I think it, I think it did change. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it did change. It's just hard, right? Because I was pregnant for all, basically all the yeah. engineer. Like, I don't, I don't know. You've never been a doctor and not been either pregnant. Or yeah. Not. Yeah. So I don't, I don't actually know. 
but I have to assume that yes. <laughs> Fascinating though. Okay. Um, I have just a couple of wrap up questions if that's okay with you. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. So what is one piece of advice that you would give to young women who are thinking of pursuing a career in medicine who also want to pursue motherhood? Um, I think, so I don't know because I don't really have like one, I have a lot of pieces of advice, (laughs) but um, I think one, I think one would be find, um, people who will be honest with you. I think it's really easy for people to like make things sound easier than they are because that's like in part sort of like what we're taught to like present from ourselves. Um, but also like it's, uh, it's really hard. I think to have like a new baby and be a doctor because you, and I'm not a pediatrician because (laughs) you know about adults, but not children. Um, and so there were, and, but it's not like, it's not all transferable knowledge and you don't know what is and what isn't. (laughs) And babies do really weird things. (laughs) that are like, should not be compatible with life as an adult. (laughs) Um, and so I, that was like really hard. And that's like some of the information that I have passed on to friends who are internal medicine physicians who have had children and who have told me that that's been the most helpful feedback. They're like, no one else is telling me these things. (laughs) Um, and I'm like, well, I guess no one's being honest with you (laughs) (laughs) because I'm going to be the one to tell you that like, it's really scary when your baby has disordered a disorder breathing pattern, but it turns yeah. out that that's normal for newborns. <laughs> um, and, and little things like that. Yeah. Um, or like, you know, calling in on the, on the pediatrician after hours line is like the approach from a pediatrician to those calls is very different than the approach as an internist to those calls. And, um, you know, just like mentally how you, how you make that adjustment from like doctor answering the pages to like mother sending the pages. Um, it's really hard. So I think just like find people who you feel like are giving you like honest advice and perspectives, I think is really valuable. I love that. I love that idea of just like, you need somebody who's actually going to tell you what's real because if everybody just tells you, Oh no, you can do it. It's fine. Then you don't actually know what you're getting into. And not that you'll ever know what you're getting into, but at least to have some sort of an idea. Some yeah. Or you don't know that like the feelings or the experiences that you're having are like maybe actually normal for a physician mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe not normal and you actually yeah. need to do something about right. it because right. like there is this range and sometimes we're outside of it, but we're just so caught up in everything. You don't even know like what is normal. Is this is this a problem? Maybe this right. is a problem. Well, I know just from firsthand doing these interviews that they have made an impact on you just talking to other mothers and like in a good way because you're suddenly like in that moment of like okay this is normal i'm not alone okay this you know there's that yeah hearing that honesty of hardship is so important in this you're so right yeah that's a really good piece of advice i also love just the image of trying to transfer from the um the internist answering the page versus the pediatrician (laughs) uh, versus the mom calling the pediatrician. I feel like I struggle so hard with that role. And like the other day we were calling, I can't remember, we were calling the PCP line after hours 
and they like put out the page and then the um the on-call doc calls you back and I very automatically start like presenting my child like a patient I'm like (laughs) four-year-old with no past medical history and then I like have to like catch myself and be like oh um uh this is actually this is so-and-so's mom and like this is what's going on (laughs) and I'm just like now really confused the doctor on the other end of the line it it gives you away very quickly right (laughs) but it's also just a really hard transition to make of like this is how I'm used to interacting with other doctors and I am now interacting with other doctors but in a different role and it's not a role I'm comfortable with Mm -hmm. yeah and like is this an okay thing to do to wake the on-call doctor up right now like I'm I know that I'm waking somebody else up (laughs) and like I'm gonna feel really horrible if there's nothing wrong (laughs) and I know that I wouldn't want to be woken up if it wasn't a big deal but like how am I supposed to know if it's a big deal this isn't my field of practice right (laughs) yeah yeah I I hadn't thought about that but you do have the knowledge of being an on-call doctor so like you know the guilt that you might be having if it turns out to be fine (laughs) right (laughs) but I think it's also important like you said finding someone to give you the honest truth because you need to as in order to be the best parent you can be you need to feel like it's okay to call your doctor in the middle of the night when you're not sure and maybe it does turn out to be nothing but you need to be able to to call because if it's not your field of practice you have no way to know if it's really something or not right yeah and also you just have those this is why you're not allowed to practice medicine on people that yeah. you know and love yeah. because there is <laughs> yeah. a huge emotional attachment and that yeah. sort of just rolls over and over and over and just exactly yeah, yeah exactly. and i have such a wellness bias for my own family i was like they're fine don't worry about it everybody's fine i have a wellness the same bias, bias we patient. have for ourselves I know, yeah. right? i'm fine nothing nothing's a big deal yeah oh, oh my goodness. okay our um our final wrap-up question <laughs> So what is one thing that listeners can do once a day to make themselves 1% stronger, be it physically, emotionally, academically, or socially? I also have a hard time with this question (laughs) because I don't really know, but um, I think like finding a few minutes to just do something that you enjoy even if it's while if it's while you're doing something else, like I on maternity leave got really into podcasts and have sort of like continued that. And so I will listen to them when I'm like making dinner or doing the dishes or cleaning. And like I really enjoy that. And even you enjoyed them doing... so much that you're now on one. <laughs> I'm now on one. <laughs> but or you know, whatever, whatever yeah. it is, right? Like even if it feels like you don't have time for it you can probably find something that you can multitask and enjoy <laughs> doing at the same yeah. time. <laughs> Both Alice and I have really got into that over the last year. It's that real moment of escapism, seriously. Yeah. It's just like having something. I also actually, during my maternity leave, got really into podcasts, really just one podcast um, that like I listen to like my medical podcast and the things that I feel like I'm responsibly like getting my education and whatnot. But I have this like one gymnastics podcast, which is like totally not related to medicine, not anything that I do in my daily life. But I started listening to it while I was like up all night breastfeeding my first child. And I've just like, that's been the one thing that I've stuck with as like, this is my one like guilty pleasure that like I will listen to while driving or while folding the laundry and just like carve out some time during the week to like put together this like hour and a half of podcasts bits and pieces yeah and it is it's just so nice to have that one time where I can just be like 
I don't, I'm not being a mom right now. I'm not being a doctor right now. I'm just doing whatever it is that I'm multitasking and enjoying it. And it's really, it's peaceful. It is. <laughs> what's your, what's your uh, big podcast recommendation then? Oh God. Um, <laughs> it sounds like there's lots. <laughs> no, it's, no, so it's not, it's, it's honestly not that many because I don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the ones that I listen to regularly, the one, well, the one medicine one I listen to is the curbsiders. I love regularly. the curbsiders. I listen to that one all the time. Um, and then the not medicine one, um, I listen to is the daily from the New York times. Nice. Um, and then there's like kind of a smattering of like other ones that will sort of like come and go, but those are the two like mainstays. Yeah. <laughs> I love the curbsiders and I love being able to like pause it. I feel like that is what I love most about podcasts as opposed to an actual in-person lecture. Like I love in-person lectures. I think they're superior in so many ways, but when I can pause it, think through the pathophysiology or whatever, or go back and like and back that up. one yeah. part <laughs> and then I can keep going with the case. I feel like it kind of fits my, my like brain speed. Is it, is it that podcast where they're just sort of like really chatty and happy and friendly? They are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alex like walks in while I'm like folding the laundry and they're talking about like whatever cellulitis. But, yeah, but they, yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of this really lovely back and forth friendship thing going on. It's really lovely. Yeah. But they're talking about something really, whoa, well, it's, 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 <laughs> the two combinations confuses me. But, <laughs> oh, yes, but it's, it's that one. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad to know. I'm also noticing how how bad we are at doing quick wrap up questions. Yeah. We always do this, but it's, it's lovely. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Is there anything else you want to share with the group, share with the class before no, we wrap thank up? thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Rebecca. And best of luck with your fellowship and your family and all of your amazing work. Thank, thank you. And thank you. Good luck with this, this endeavor, this podcast. It's so amazing. And I can't wait to hear all the other stories that get shared on it. Oh, thank, oh, thank you. you. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for those wonderful words of wisdom. Thank you. Um, well, that la the last wrapping up there mm -hmm. is totally in my wheelhouse in that I podcast uh, my life at the moment, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I... I feel like this is not the first and will not be the last time that Curbsiders comes up. Um, it is definitely one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. Um, we are very much not sponsored or connected to Curbsiders in any way. We're just, you know, doctors who like education. Um, but I love that different people in medicine can all listen to these similar podcasts and can bond over them. It's, it's just a nice experience. It's nice to build community. And that's always been a big thing that comes up in a lot of conversations on this podcast is building your community or tribe, as you, you like to use now. Yes, tribe. And I feel like we've been struggling so much to maintain community and connections throughout this whole pandemic year because it's been now a full year. Um, and using this podcast our own podcasts and bonding over other podcasts or anything else has just been a really nice way to to stretch those arms out and and envelop our our community around us again now i definitely think rebecca is a new friend that i want to keep in our lives forever 
because she is just awesome and just just really fun to talk to. Yes, and as have been all of our guests. We've been so fortunate to have so many incredible guests on this show. So many amazing people that I knew before and many that we met for the first time. But the main reason why I'm groveling is I will admit this now. <laughs> uh, we, we do have a episode two coming up with, uh, with Rebecca next week, which we'll tell you more about in a second. But the episode two that you're going to hear... Um, is actually the third conversation we've had with her because <laughs> um, we were sort of too involved in conversation that I forgot to press record. Uh, and we got 45 minutes into our conversation before we realized we hadn't recorded and we had to reschedule. So yes, the one and only time we've ever not recorded a conversation was our follow up conversation <laughs> with Rebecca. And she was so graceful about it. We were very, very grateful for the empathy she had for us. And her willingness to reschedule and have once again very thoughtful and thought-provoking conversation. I am somewhat happy that wasn't recorded though, just because I can still picture what my face would probably look like <laughs> at that moment. You sort of see the color of my face drop Drains. out. Yeah. And he interrupts the conversation and goes, uh, I'm so sorry. And just that both me and Rebecca are like mouths dropped open, like jaws <laughs> hit the floor. It was comical in the amount of like stereotypical reaction we both had in that It moment. was very cartoon-like, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. But um, now that we've, we've um, teased it to you all, the episode that we're going to have next week, which will be a very special follow-up interview with Rebecca, we're going to spend at least part of it um, discussing a paper that she co-authored um, called Supporting New Physicians and New Parents, A Call to Create a Standard Parental Leave Policy for Residents, which she co-authored with Dr. Lauren Fields and um, Dr. Anna Vollerman. Um, at the University of Chicago. So we're super excited to share that discussion with you folks next week. So tune in next week for more of the same and the same of more. No, that's not the word. For an I like it though. We should adapt depth, it. Even more in depth and philosophical discussion with with the three of us again. And um. As always, you can get in contact with us uh, via our email, which is drmamapodcast at gmail.com. And you can get in contact with us and follow us and like us and share our podcast on socials via Dr. Mama Podcast. Close. At Dr. Mama Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really on all the socials. I just know the phrase and, and I like to plug it here. Well, now, now, now you're giving away that if people communicate with us on socials, it will be with me. Yes. If you email, you got probably, I don't know, a 50-50 chance, maybe 60-40 that it's, that it's me answering. If it's anything other than email, it will almost definitely be Alex. Sorry about that, friends. Lucky you. And Lucky sadly, you. one of my main redeeming <laughs> features, apparently, to listeners on this podcast is my accent. And you don't get the accent over typing on uh, social media. But I don't think that that's a redeeming feature. I think that is one of your charming characteristics to go along with your thought-provoking questions and intelligent conversation. Oh, shit. <laughs> I mean, you're contractually obliged to say that, uh, especially because I'm the one putting it together. Contracted by a marriage contract, yeah. I think. <laughs> Anyway, we'll see you next week. Um, have a good week, lovely people. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. 
The Doctor Mama podcast is presented by Alice Kaufman and produced, mixed and edited by Alex Cumming, who also provided the original music. 